it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast for a Monday, October 18th. We have a lot to do on the show. Well, 15 days ago, the Blue Jays played an indoor baseball game at Rogers Center against the Baltimore Orioles. Unfortunately, it was their last baseball game of the year. But nonetheless, we haven't seen a COVID spike, and we didn't when the Jays were playing outside, or when Toronto FC came back, or when Canada's amazing men's soccer team were playing. So what does that all mean? And how does that factor in to indoor teams? Leafs, Raptors, all coming up. We talked to uh, the Seneca College president about the fact that they put a vaccine mandate in before anywhere else in Canada. It wasn't a popular thing amongst many circles. And you were kind of pushing uphill for a good chunk of the summer. What was that like? Farah Nasser with our weekly visit as well. And we've got time for the Fantastic Four debate. It's all coming up on the Toronto Today podcast. I want to go here, and we're going to play you some sound in a minute or two from the Today Show over the weekend. Now, you're going to think the audio is from Fox News or, you know, somebody with a slant. No, no, it's from the Today Show, okay? A legacy media program. And what's the audio? What's the story about? Well, the story's kind of relatable to hear. Why? Because two weeks ago yesterday, uh, Toronto finished the regular season in baseball. The Blue Jays played the Baltimore Orioles. Now, they remember the Sunday, right? They had to win. They needed the Yankees or Red Sox to lose, those dreaded arch enemies, and neither of them did. So the Blue Jays missed the playoffs with a 91-71 and record. And remember, remember, people were concerned, is the best way I can put it, about baseball coming back to Rogers Center. So much so that baseball didn't come back to Rogers Center until Friday, July 30th. And capacity was limited to 15,000 people. 15,000 people. They played a bunch of home games, most of which were successful in uh, July and August. In fact, it's you can make the case that coming back to Rogers Center got the Blue Jays back into the race. And people looked at each other and they said, I don't know. Is this the right thing to do? Are we ready for this? Well, some people are. Yeah, I know, but I'm not ready. Oh, I know you're not ready. That's yes, you said that earlier. But some people are really excited to go back because they're fully vaccinated to a ball game in the outdoor air or to watch Toronto FC play. I was amazingly excited to watch Canada's soccer team play. And now you all y'all are on board with Alfonso Davies and Jonathan David and the rest of the Canadian crew that's trying to qualify for Qatar for the first time since we were all a lot younger or not even born yet, 1986. Um, so there was, you know, some alarmist concepts about what these games were going to do. And then, well, nothing happened two weeks later. And nothing happened two weeks after that. And nothing happened two weeks after that. I mean, we went through all of August, all of September, and what was it closer to? I'll ask this. What was this closer to? A best case scenario or a worst case scenario? You already know the answer. Then we expanded capacity. No, no, I'm not kidding. We expanded capacity on September 13th and said, no, no, actually it wasn't even that. It was September uh, 28th for the last six games of the year. And despite the fact that nobody from the provincial government said, you know what? Can we look at expanding capacity? And no one from the municipal government, you know, the guys that like getting the free tickets and the guys that had the Jays won the World Series would be up on stage talking about the hometown Jays and this and that and 
gosh golly, what a great run. They did that with the 2019 Raptors, right? Like, I'm not saying they don't want, of course they want success, but, you know, every politician likes to get up there on stage. It was, nobody can forget that you had Trudeau, Ford, Tory all up there, almost elbowing each other out of the way to get to the podium. But we brought the Jays back and we brought Toronto FC back and Canada played to a limited capacity. And then we expanded capacity and, uh, and, and it went really, really well. It went really, really well. And then, but wait, Sunday, October 3rd, 15 days ago, you know what happened? We had 30,000 people there, but I got bad news for you. It was raining that day and we had to close the roof. Oh my goodness. The roof and everybody in the, in the place is fully vaccinated, right? But we closed the roof, 30,000 people. What are we going to do about these indoor events? And then the, the blue, the, the Raptors and the, uh, and the Maple Leafs, there was a sports writer for the Toronto star who said, who wrote, I can see the Raptors playing in front of empty crowd, empty arenas again. I can see that. Uh, well, if you can see that, you're the only one who can see it. And you're not doing very much research. And you're not exactly following the science. So, you know, there's lanes to stay in and lanes to, you know, veer in and out of, I suppose, sometimes. Um, I'm no expert in a ton of things. But if I'm going to talk about something publicly or write something in a blog on the Toronto Star, eh, I might do a little bit of research into some of the numbers. So everything went great. Why do I know this? Cases are down. Uh, hospitalizations are way down. Intensive care units are not full of COVID patients attending live sporting events over the last seven, eight weeks. I hate to tell you. Then there's this. Here's some of the report from NBC's Shaquille Brewster over the weekend that these massive college football crowds... Oh, well, it's Canada, so we're smart and we know how to we know how to vaccinate and we're highly vaccinated and we know how to risk mitigate and everything. But in the States, oh, my gosh, these these what are they? Suicide cults, super spreader events? Mm, Not so much. And in this clip, you're going to hear Joy Reid from MSNBC talking with Dr. Anthony Fauci and they're scared. They think COVID-19 is going to feast. That's the word they use. Feast on large crowds you want fear-mongering you got fear-mongering here's shaq brewster's report all while doctors warned of games becoming potential super spread events a frightening prospect with hospitals at the time already on the brink as soon as i saw it i thought covid's about to have a feast what did you think i thought the same thing i think it's really unfortunate but it never happened covid cases hospitalizations and deaths now all down nationwide do those scenes of those packed crowds give you less anxiety than they did back in September? It does. It definitely gives me less anxiety at that time as I see some increased number of vaccinated people uh, and the decrease in the dwindling numbers, for sure. Cases are now in steep decline in every college football state across the South, including Florida, where hospitalizations fell 64% last month, even as some 90,000 fans packed the Gator Stadium. You see it on TV and it looks really scary because we're not used to seeing that anymore. But in reality, I think the exposure isn't as great as we think it is. Doctors crediting games in open air venues, a vaccination bump during the surge and natural immunity after Delta swept through younger populations. Yeah, it's all of that. And the doctors were wrong again. And there's some backtracking on those particular comments. The top doctors got it wrong. 
Okay, and we've all gotten things wrong during COVID. Okay, so no one's doing a victory dance. No one's doing the Joker dance on the staircase. Okay, everybody enjoys that meme. But yeah, they got it wrong. There hasn't been a spike in COVID-19 cases. And you can have some, you know, different opinions about what cases still mean. Let me repeat what Brewster said in the report. And that's from NBC, not Fox News or something even more nefarious in terms of a media organization. And yeah, there's actually more you know, nefarious media organizations than Fox News. Believe it or not, it's true. Uh, decline in cases. Florida's seen hospitalizations fall 64% since last month. They've had 90,000 plus to watch Florida Gators home games every time they play a home game. But the large crowds and the full crowds have proved two things. One, it's safe to go do those things. And the second thing is most people are over being hysterical when they're fully vaccinated and being outside. It's been great to see people go and enjoy themselves again. And I don't care if it's eating dinner somewhere quietly, nice table for two in the corner on a Friday night, get a cocktail, order a steak. I think that's wonderful. You've been able to do those things that you've been waiting so long to do. But I also think it's great to see 21 and 22-year-old college students partying with each other in these football stadiums. Three things that you heard of, of the, on the report in the decline. Open air venues. Of course, that's more helpful. Of course it is. And I'm going to get to the indoor factor in a second. The rise in vaccinations and more natural immunity. Did I just hear a news report mention natural immunity after the Delta variant swept through younger populations? I think that I did. A mainstream media report about natural, meaning acquired immunity. Not that you were born immune to COVID, although many doctors believe that some people actually are, that COVID has passed through some of us already, and we haven't even noticed it. It sure has been like that with a ton of kids. I mean, the numbers bear that out. Not saying that we're universally safe, and there are no 100% guarantees about COVID-19. We're well aware of this. So what happens now? Open-air venues aren't super spreaders. What about these large indoor events? I don't know. What about them? We just had an indoor baseball game with 30,000 fans and hundreds more personnel there. And we saw 80 Toronto COVID cases on Saturday. <sighs> Makes you think, doesn't it? Um, my friend, Roy Green, who we haven't met, but Roy does the weekend show, legendary broadcaster, legendary broadcaster, put this on his uh, Twitter account. And the irony of this, and this is like, legitimately ironic not like rain on your wedding day roy green tweeted this on the weekend uh considering he's considering taking down his twitter account he wrote i'm considering closing my twitter account i'll ask you if you believe time on certain social media sites is well spent or increasingly time wasted is it difficult to quit twitter the executive editor of a popular website who walked away this year joins us and while i missed that particular interview i heard some of roy's show roy's far from alone. Amy Morrison's a professor at the University of Waterloo who specializes in social media, and she joins us now. Amy, A, thanks so much for the time. B, this what Roy says and what Roy asks, maybe we don't ask it publicly, but some people just vanish. They are disappearing. They're finding, A, it's taking either too much of their time. B, they don't like sort of the tone and the water temperature of what social media is now. There are a lot of reasons people leave social media. Some of them leave it in a huff when they become 
embroiled in a controversy. Um, some of them just get bored and find they're not enjoying it as much. Um, but some of them come to compare the spaces they're in online to the spaces they're in in person um, and find those online spaces to be very negative and toxic um, and decide they don't want to be at that party anymore. Are you finding it's more one than the other, the time spent and the time consumption, or B, how it's making them feel, getting in you know, uh, an argument, uh, fi- feeling you know, abused when someone disagrees with, with maybe just even the most simple uh, observation? Is it more one than the other that you're seeing people walk away? I think it really varies. You know, people aren't aren't normally saying, I, I think I would like to do more knitting. I think I'm going to reduce my <laughs> media time. Usually they're having a negative experience in that space um, in some way. Either they're, um, you know, adults are, are seeing their kids on social media on the time and all, all the time and they, they want their kids to do less and they become aware that, that they're really doing a lot or they find themselves doom scrolling at three in the morning when they have insomnia and think like, wow, this is really not normal behavior or they think every time I go there, I just, I get upset and it's not fun anymore um, and I'm leaving. But but everyone's reasons for social media, leaving social media are as various um, as the different social media they have and it really varies person by person based on who you're following and who your friend group is. It's really, it's such a unique thing because it, the, the platform's so unique because many, let's say celebrities, let's say even people that, that do what I do that are in the media, some people absolutely thrive on it and they, you know, they're able to call information, decide, you know, what works for their job and and survey people and other people have nothing to do with it. There's celebrities that are on it constantly um, and interact on a regular basis and there's some that absolutely still, um, you know, 10, 11 years in absolutely refuse to have anything to do with it and don't feel like being not on it affects their bottom line. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's great that people are able to to make that calculation, right, that um, that there are more benefits than drawbacks to something. If you're famous enough, you don't have to participate in activities that are intended to draw more attention to you. Um, if you are, you know, really isolated geographically um, from people that you used to know and who's um, company you treasure, you may want to be on Facebook more because that's the only way that you can see them. Or um, if you are uh, a sort of junior member of an attention-seeking profession, like let's say in the media, or you need to collect lots of contacts, it's a place you almost have to be. So people have different personal uh, as well as professional reasons for wanting to be on social media or being able mm. to choose to not be on social media. Amy Morrison is a professor at the University of Waterloo, specializes in social media. What kind of reaction, um, you know, give me your feel for you personally, but also what you may have heard from colleagues anecdotally when the testimony came out um, re-Facebook last week, when the former Facebook employee Frances Hoggins, she did a 60 Minutes interview on the Sunday night. We played lots of clips of that. And then the congressional testimony who says um, these products are a major harm to children and they fuel a lot of polarization within our culture. Yeah, they really do. And I, I think anyone who's been following Facebook would say this is not really new information. But Frances Hogan um, was such a clear communicator and really um, was able to explain these facts in a way that made sense to a lot of people um, that the business revenue model of Facebook is to keep as many users on the site for as long as possible and make them return as frequently as possible. And the way to get people to engage in a voluntary behavior is to make it attractive, right? So our news feed is algorithmically organized um, with things that we have chosen to follow um, to deliver to us the content that we have shown in the past we're more likely to engage with. And we mostly are attracted to content. This is a psychological mm. 
of human beings to things that make us angry and things that make us scared. And the more we get angry and scared, the more time we spend on Facebook and the more we see things that make us even angrier and more scared. And that's just psychology colliding with advertising-based media. For people who end up quitting, what's the bet? What is the most likely process to succeed if that's their goal to get offered or to vastly minimize their time on there? Is it is it the old and we ask this obviously with alcohol, drugs, gambling, all this stuff? Um, is it going cold turkey or is it putting it in its proper you know modified place? Well, just like with alcohol or reducing any sort of uh, problematic behavior or substance use, um, it's going to vary person by person. I would say number one tip: take it off your phone. The apps off your phone because the phone is always in your hand. Um, if you have a computer at home or you only access that computer at the office, if you have to log into a website <laughs> called Facebook or Twitter or, or Instagram, there's just that little extra barrier in between you and meeting that craving because most of us check social media mindlessly. So we're already 10 minutes into our Instagram scroll before we're like, oh, right, I was going to do less Instagram. So, number one tip is just take it off your phone. You can still access it, but it'll be a tiny bit harder. It'll give you that moment to resist your urge. It's the timer factor too, isn't it? I know we've got our kids just for Xbox and, and other stuff in the household on timers. There's a maximum amount of time. It varies whether it's a weekday or a weekend or, you know, sort of a high traffic uh, education area when, when our high schooler would be writing exams. But you know what? Like we got to look in the mirror sometimes and, and do it for ourselves. There's no reason adults can, can't set a timer. It sounds like, it sounds ridiculous, but I, I mean, I think we do it socially. I think we do it already saying, I want to spend this much time on my job. I want to spend this much time at the gym. I want to spend this much time talking with my partner like we regulate that already to begin with absolutely timers are great i use timers i'm going to give myself a little break um and and check my instagram or my twitter i love twitter um but it's really easy for me to get so wrapped up in that that all of a sudden it's been 45 minutes instead of 10 so set a little timer before you start um and once it pings you're like oh yeah i intended to turn this off um, another tool that's available to people are certain types of internet blockers um one that i use is called freedom um and you can uh, download it, and, and what it does is it will selectively, with a timer, block access to certain types of websites or apps on your computer or phone. So you can still use your computer, but it just every time you try to log into Facebook, it'll say you are free from distraction um, for whatever time you set it to, and you can put it in in sort of a super mode where you can't even undo your block for the amount of time that you've set. And sometimes those little breaks are just enough to remind people that uh, they can be happier without unlimited access to your social media. I got about 45 seconds. It feels like the term doom scrolling has almost been, you know, made for and designed by the pandemic. Do you think not that the pandemic all ends at once, but as we emerge out of it, will people spend less time on it? It, it was almost a need to know basis. And people had the time, obviously, without commuting, without socializing for better or worse, richer or poorer to be on their phones more. I, yeah, I think it was less about the opportunity to have the time to do it and more about the sense of control it can give us to consume news or media in, in the pandemic. We had so little control over anything. We at least thought, I can read every single news article that's ever been published, and somehow that will keep me safe. When we get anxious, we do to try to control what we can, including through information behaviors. Amy, thanks very much for your insight on this uh, important topic uh, for all. Whether I think parents, I think people that are you, having to use it in the workplace, their bosses want them to. There's some bosses that want their employees to get right off it, so it varies all over the map, doesn't it? It sure does, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. You got it. Amy Morrison uh, from the University of Waterloo. 
The Ontario universities with high vaccine coverage. I saw this over the weekend. It is worth mentioning. Um, it's great news. Uh, Western and their faculty, their workers had to really push to get vaccines mandated on campus in mid-August. They're at 99.5% vaccination rate among students, 98.7% among employees. Most of Ontario's biggest schools are reporting vaccine coverage rates of 95 to 99%. The school that got it all going, not just in Ontario, but Canada, was Seneca College. And they did this back in early July, basically uh, as we were heading into the summer. Not at the end of the summer, not in the middle of it, but at the beginning. I want to bring on uh, Seneca College President David Agnew and talk about that with him. David, it's great to have you on again. Thanks for making the time for me. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, I mentioned this early, um, you know, and, and of course, um, you know, Seneca deserves a lot of credit. I'm sure you'd say you you were listening, you know, to the you were reading the tea leaves. There were there were obviously parents of prospective kid of of, uh, of of prospective students. There were faculty that said this is important. If we want to get to where we need to go in the fall, we're going to have to have some element of of protection from from the virus um when when did this start you know getting into your mind in june and july and you said someone's got to go and someone's got to be first at this well actually it goes way back before that i mean i was uh, discussing this with colleagues and trying to figure out how how we could do it effectively frankly legally uh uh you know we wanted to make sure that we were doing it the right way so we actually announced it in in mid June to mm-hmm. our to our students and employees, and at the time, yeah, I mean we were the only ones. But honestly, it just seemed like the right thing to do, and, and common sense. I mean, for months, as you know, ever since we got the vaccine, every public health authority, every political leader, every church leader has been telling, and religious leader has been telling us, please get vaccinated. It's the only way we can actually stop this pandemic and save lives. So. It just, you know, hey, it just fell just sort of one step after the other. And this seemed to be the right step to take. You did it at a time, though, when I remember interviewing, you know, OSSTF uh, representatives and ETFO representatives says, well, the vaccine, that's a personal health decision. Um, We just did a topic, uh, did a segment on, uh, you know, where Ontario polling is for the next election. And Andrea Horvath, though she's for it now, on August 5th said, I'm against it. I I do not want mandatory COVID-19 vaccines uh, for education workers. So that was pretty late in the summer when, you know, dominoes started to fall and the ball started rolling. Yeah, but I mean, I, I, I don't want to play with words here, but of course, you know, nobody's mandating that you have to get a vaccine. What we're saying is if you want to come on campus, you have to be vaccinated. So if you don't want to come on campus, you don't have to get vaccinated. But you, you can't take certain programs. You, you, there's lots of online stuff going on. But of course, it's, you know, for employees, absolutely. If you want to uh, be a custodian, if you want to teach in one of our hands-on labs, if you want to uh, be a security guard um, at a Seneca campus, absolutely, you have to be vaccinated. And and you can't test your way out of it. I, I, don't, think right. that's, I don't think that's the way to go. And I'm, I'm sorry that that's become a, an option at, at, you know, in too many circumstances, because that, that doesn't get us to where we need to get on vaccinations. You didn't have a lot of government assistance. The province at the time was saying, you know, Doug Ford made the comment about not wanting a split society, but I'd make the case municipalities weren't exactly being vocal about it either for their employees. Now there's these massive vaccination campaigns, for example, in Toronto, but they didn't mandate their, their employees be vaccinated until well into September. So did you feel like at times we're on our own here? This is an uphill struggle for, for post-secondary institutes. 
The, the thing, that, what was interesting was, yes, we for, for actually several weeks, we were the only ones. Um, but the, the messages of encouragement and support were coming from all over, uh, including from people in government. So there was obviously a reluctance to take that step. But a whole bunch of people really wanted to take that step, and and so I, I mean, I'm just I'm just delighted that you know I, I mean those were amazing numbers that you uh, reported on in terms of vaccination rates among students and employees, and it's just terrific. And and frankly, vaccine mandates have an effect because people who are sitting on the fence got off that fence and they went and got the jab. David Agnew is our guest, uh, Seneca College president. I've got a, a tweet in that would like to ask a question. Are too many students still schooling online? Um, she's quoting it as 90% of their classes online. If every student has to be vaccinated and the mandates are in place, can we get more kids back into classrooms? I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's and that's what's happening. I mean, o- over time, as as the mandates take take hold and those vaccination rates come up, um, we're, we are uh, going to be offering more and more uh, in person, although there still be lots of uh, online options and hybrid and flex delivery and all sorts of options because, in fact, a lot of students have found that they like the convenience of not having to come to campus, you know, every day or four, four or five days a week. So that's uh, that's going to happen. But you know, we've we've from the from day one of the pandemic, we've taken a very safe approach and and we've uh, tried to always make sure that when we open something that we don't have to close it again because of of another wave or another uh, hit by a variant. So we'll continue to do that. Uh, We'll, we'll take it slowly. We'll take it cautiously, but yes, absolutely. Every, with every passing uh, semester, in fact, the beginning of the semester, we were only allowing students with actual classes to come on campus. Now we've said anyone can come on campus as long as they're, Mm. as long as they're vaccinated. David, thanks for the update on uh, where things are with your campus. Uh, and again, um, you know, you don't have to take it, but I want to give you credit for for pushing against the grain here. I think that's what it was uh, in the summertime. And yeah, many universities climbed on, but you were the first in Canada to do it. Thanks for making the time for me. My pleasure. Thank you. David Agnew, uh, Seneca College president. 5.30 and 6 today, Global News uh, on uh, Global News Toronto will feature Alan Carter, of course, from the Alan Carter radio program and our next guest, a weekly visit with Farah Nasser. I'm sure you're like me. Your brain goes a million miles a minute and you're like, well, that'll be in the newscast tonight and that'll be the fifth story, sixth story. Like you're probably assessing it while you're making kids breakfast and getting them off to school going, what's on the news tonight? And that's probably Colin Powell's death is probably something significant. Yeah, certainly, certainly. And I mean, what you talked about, I mean, everybody uh, of this generation of our generation uh, knows who he is. But, you know, you I know you read that text message <laughs> to me. I mean, the first thing that stuck out stuck out is the, uh, you know, his, his reputation was stained by by what uh, a decision he made to push that faulty evidence, um, you know, to the U.N. that led to mm-hmm. the Iraq war. And, and that's going to be part of his legacy, but also part of his legacy with the highest ranking, you know, uh, black official as uh, secretary of state in, in the United States. So. There's this kind of, um, you know, two sides to, to how he's going to be remembered. You, you you got it exactly right. And in 96, that's way right. Way before 9-11, way before the Iraq role, he had a pristine reputation. So what Bill Clinton wouldn't have wanted to see is Colin Powell running as a Republican. That's the last thing he was happy to take on, uh, you know, 80 year old Bob Dole. He didn't yeah. want Colin Powell running against him. 
No, for sure. But then a, again, he helped Barack Obama get elected later, right? Yeah. Democrat, which was also, uh, you know, so he played an instrumental role in getting the first black president elected. So anyway, lots of things to discuss about his legacy tonight. <laughs> I bet. Um, you know, last week, uh, I'm sure you felt the roller coaster that I did. And, and I think it was documented in your newscast, uh, the, the excitement that the land borders open. We've all been waiting, waiting and more waiting. Um, but then, you know, two days later comes the news that the Canadian government so far isn't going to waive the idea of a rapid test uh, on the way back, which can run you $160, $200. I, I mean, it may not stop far, like a nine, 10 day vacation. If people are like, mm-hmm. this is the trip of a lifetime and we're going to do it. We've been waiting, but it's going to, it's going to, you know, cut into those day trips and those weekend trips. People, I don't think are going to go across to shop. Um, well, you know, a group of four guys, girls, whatever, and then spring for $600 of rapid tests on the way back. That kind of defeats the purpose. It, it, the whole border thing has not not made sense to me from the start, to be honest, Greg. I mean, the fact that the borders were closed, but you could still fly into the United States, no problem. Um, <laughs> and then the way things work now, like you have to get, uh, you know, you have to get a test to get on the flight to go. And uh, I have a family member traveling to the U.S. this week uh, for work and, and has to pay like, a, you know, first you have to pay $50, for an antigen test. And then you need a molecular test on the way back, which can run you like 140 bucks U.S. So it's just... It's. It, I mean, work's paying for it for this person, but mm. it's. It's just. It's such an ex- expensive thing. And then you talk about the land border. You need that molecular test, as you mentioned. You have to pay that much money. It, it, the whole thing again. It just. It makes the whole border thing doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Well, my recollection. My recollection is in March of 2020, you're coming back as, as many people were with travel uh, arriving to you know things being shut down, things being closed, the whole world in a mass panic and I, I feel like you documented on on social media that the airports were absolute now we knew a lot less about the virus then but it was like chaos probably doesn't describe it if i took you back there uh, mentally does it no my husband my husband got covid we, we and pres- mm-hmm. a pre- presumptive covid because he we didn't never got a test because back then remember they were weren't testing everybody um but he was very sick and we're pretty sure it was covid and it was from that in march 2020 when we came back from march break um, so yeah, it was, it was chaotic, but I just, it, it really makes me wonder like two, two years later, how, how things, things have changed, but things haven't changed in, in a lot of ways. Right. So mm. the, the land border thing that you mentioned, it, the other thing is like, you have to have COVID in that moment. Right. So like you go get gas, go for a meal and then you get a test, Like it just, the whole thing, it doesn't, it doesn't compute. I can't square that circle where it's like, it has to be at that moment. You know, at the beginning of, um, the pandemic, I remember talking to Alison McGeer, who was in charge of the SARS crisis, and she was saying mm-hmm. that even with SARS, like the temperature testing didn't work, they found, because you, it has to be in that second, in that moment. And so I don't know how much this is really going to catch or, or why why it's being done, to be honest. I'm still doing, I mean, I'm sure you're seeing things that you just roll your eye. I'm doing a temperature screen at the gym still, even though they're only accepting fully vaccinated people. I think we go, we, we're, we're a little bit, the arrows in the supermarkets when they're wiping down the conveyor belt or wiping down the counter in retail stores. You're just thinking, I, I know you're trying to make as many people feel comfortable as possible, but you know, it's, it, it's also reminding us that we want you to know how to risk mitigate, just like we now do, that it's not a fomite virus. It's an airborne virus and and uh and we can we hope at some point we can leave a lot of that stuff behind us yeah and, and again this is now this 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 uh fourth wave is of the unvaccinated right so mm. that needs to be the target and then i'm not talking about the people who are you know you're not going to change their mind you're not going to get them um you're not going to get they're not going to ever get vaccinated i'm not talking about that cohort because mm-hmm. i think that'll be hard to reach but there is still a, a portion in the in the middle there that uh 
you know, I think could still be convinced with science. Farah Nasser is our guest. She'll be hosting uh, Global News at 5.30 tonight um, on uh, Global News Toronto, on Global Toronto. Um, do you look at, at this uh, this news a couple weeks ago? We didn't get to chat last week, but the Facebook whistleblower testimony. I watched the 60 Minutes interview. Um, we played a lot of cuts from her during the week um, in terms of being, uh, you know, the cong- congressional testimony. And uh, it's really interesting. It started a ton of conversations about where it's all going. And it feels like a bullet train out of control at times with social media. And and you and I remember a life offline. So when, you know, things came about and we were online, we can kind of pivot back and forth. Our, it's weird to say our kids will never know that existence. And anybody, anybody who's a parent of anybody under 25 probably can relate to that right now, that our kids just don't have a roadmap to guide them to an, a totally online world all the time. It's, it's terrifying. And it, honestly, after that testimony, being on Facebook and being on Instagram, it made me feel really icky, to be honest. Like, it's just, <laughs> it's like what are we doing? What are, what are mm. we doing? These, these companies are obviously... Um, you know, not not thinking about morality if these allegations, you know, are true. Like it's it's really disturbing to me that um, I, I don't know that the kids kids, especially right now, like how they've changed, how their their perception of themselves has changed, of, of how they feel about themselves, and it's just it it's really it's really sad. Um, I don't put my kids on social media, and right now they they don't aren't aware of it that much, and also don't really like it, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But it's it's also part of our it's also part of our jobs, right? And and my kids are very young, so it, it very likely will change, but. Um, yeah, it's really worrying, especially hearing that testimony, as you mentioned. Well, I, Peter Mansbridge is uh, out, um, you know, with his book and I had him on on Friday's show and, and we had the exact same story where bosses were telling both of us in different circumstances. I mean, he's Peter Mansbridge and I'm me, so it's a bit of a bigger push, <laughs> but, but, uh, but it was like, get on here. You gotta be on here. You gotta be on Twitter. You gotta do this. You gotta do that. And I feel like that's about 2009. I, I think, I think about a dozen years later, bosses are more like, ah, oh. Use it if you want, but I'd prefer like 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 only be there when absolutely necessary and think really hard before you put something out there into the universe because it's going to stick forever. Like like bosses are more like now you can get in trouble for it and get me in trouble as a boss for it. Totally, totally. And and it's and, you know, we've we've been told, you know, you don't, it's not you don't have to be on it. You don't have to be on it for work. You know, it, mm. it amplifies our content and, and uh, reaches a lot of people, especially when it's, uh, you know, I mean, you know, it's arguable how many, how many people it actually reaches real people who are, who are on there or not. But you can argue about that. But it's it's, you know, something that we it's a tool we use for work for getting stories even and things like that. Right. So it's a, it's a tricky balance. I just think with the, the kids part of it is what really worries me. And it's the, it's also the modeling that I find, you know, us as parents, you know, we're, when we're scrolling on it, when we're looking at it, when we're posting and we're filtering and we're doing all that kind of stuff. I mean, what are the kids seeing? Like, it, it's not just them on it. It's, it's kind of, they model our behavior. You can tell them whatever you want, but they're watching us. So I think all of us, and I'm not taking the moral high ground because certainly I've done this too, uh, have to kind of watch watch how we show what we show our kids. Well, you know, on the show, Shiva Sadiq and I were talking about it last week, and, and we talked about um, the inherent obvious. I mean, the data is out there about what it does to young girls, what it does to teenage girls compared to boys, and whether there's something just inherently in the water or the or the dna makeup but it's harder i don't have the i don't have the honor and privilege of raising a daughter i have two sons but i'm well aware from neighbors i'm well aware from relatives uh what they go through in terms of in terms of trying to shepherd their daughters in in the right direction on on social media it's not easy it's it's 
so true. And, you know, I went for my kid, who's a brown kid, you know, I think about identity, too. Like, mm-hmm. like these filters that they use, they're, um, <clears throat> they, they make you look lighter, like lighter skinned, right? And she was once just kind of playing with my phone and found this, like, you know, not even in social media, just on the, on the pictures and was filtering and just playing around. And, and she's like, oh, I look prettier this way. This looks pretty. I look, look how beautiful I look. And it was this, like, really, really, like, saturated, like, white kind of filter on her face. And it made her look like many shades lighter and I just it really saddened me in that moment right like these are little little uh, messages that we try to undo right that have yeah. been going on for generations and now you know they get on and they just they, I don't know they go on and they, they just filter it and, and have this now thought in their mind and it just it really bug, bugs me that's rough that's rough on the, on the lighter side that's how that small po- town politician in the states became a white cat and uh, at his uh, council meeting right. or whatever that we all <laughs> We're like that's if, we, if it only could stay that light all the time, but it doesn't. He he had to point out that he wasn't a cat uh, attending his uh, his town council meeting. Have a great broadcast tonight. We'll be watching uh, at five thirty and six. I was chatting with you. Bye. Okay, seven fifty two. This is a this is almost a uh, generational uh, test when we play this song, and we're playing this for a very good reason. And there's not going to be any words that cross me up. The words always cross me up. I don't like talking over lyrics. Dave, you know what this song is. Oh yeah. Okay. Rob Trevison, do you know what this song is? Of course I do. Well, it's from that uh, SCTV sketch <laughs> where Holland is. <laughs> it is that. Yeah. Sheba, what is this song? I don't know what it's called. Oh, What's it called? What do you, know. you, what do you guys, wh- why do you I hear it? Why, why do people play it? What do people what what are people inferring when they play it? Do you know? Winning? Yeah. Close. Yeah. Well, yes, it's about yeah. you and, and who wins at life more than Sheba Siddiqui, really, when we think <laughs> about it. That's what our bosses tell us. Um, no, it's Chariots of Fire, and that was a British movie that won the Academy Award, although no one's... This is like that other movie we talked about that won the Oscar. No one Dances with Wolves. No one's seen Chariots of Fire in 37 years, but it won the Oscar, and it's about two British runners. So anytime someone wins something running, yes. or it's like... It's almost used... Like, I think they used it in National Lampoon's Vacation, Dave, when Clark Griswold and his son Rusty are running towards Wally World <laughs> yeah. and racing each other. It's true. They didn't use I, it in Rocky Three when Rocky and Apollo are jumping on the beach and it's seen as sort of like a weird, you know, but it thing has, where they're hugging each other in t- tank tops and short shorts, but whatever. I can remember it being used in Sesame Street when <laughs> Grover was running with somebody <laughs> on the beach. And that's hilarious. Yeah, that's that's the my first sort of exposure to this song. What I miss about Sesame Street is they do some really clever stuff for adults. They know you're yeah. stuck there. Oh, yeah. They, <laughs> yeah they, they know you are being held hostage by, like, a terrorist group to watch, like, Elmo and Big Bird and, yeah. and snuffle up. Again. But So they'll throw a couple little nuggets in there for adults and be like, we know you're there. We know you're stuck there. Here's a joke for you. Like many Disney movies as well. They oh. do that very, very well. Oh, the Disney movies have dirty jokes, though. Yeah, they do. Those are dirty. <laughs> they do? There's a oh, lot yeah. of that. In- Shrek had a couple of those moments, I thought. No, all of them do. You yeah. just have to catch it. It's really quick. It's really subtle. Frozen is not so subtle. The the dirty <laughs> joke that comes out of Frozen, but that's I, for another conversation. I can't believe I took my two boys to the theater uh, to Frozen. They wanted to see it. Now they had no interest in the sequel because they're like, you know, it's it's. But there are go- there are movies geared towards young boys, and there's mm-hmm. movies geared towards young girls. I think we'd agree that Frozen's geared towards young girls. Oh, one hundred percent. Plain and simple. 
my daughter would watch that <laughs> over and as and has what and then flips from arms. number one to number two. To, oh my! Can we watch Brutal. something else? Why did it take so long for a sequel? Why didn't they get that out, pump that out a bit faster? I think it's hard to draw. build up demand. It's hard. It's hard, hard to, to draw. draw. <laughs> they give, give them a break, you know. They have to milk all the money that comes out of number one first they before do. they can get to number two. Um, all right. By the way, last thing on Chariots of Fire, it did win the Oscar in a year where Raiders of the Lost Ark and Reds came out. So again, like, what are these voters thinking at the game? They should have to come on like shows like this and explain themselves forty years later. How does Chariots of Fire uh, weigh in as a better movie than Raiders of the Lost Ark? Whatever. So uh, Shiva Siddiqui ran in the uh, Toronto Waterfront Marathon yesterday. I got a question just from the video I, I saw. Pete, did, did everyone start wearing a mask and then they're allowed to take it off as the race begins? I saw a lot of that in the quick, okay. quick footage I saw. Tell me your experience. So when I signed up for this, I signed up before Delta variant was even a thing. So as it started picking, this was like in the summer, early summer, I signed up for this with a group of women, my hiking group. Shout out. Yeah, so, Dave and I had dinner with him the other night. We documented <laughs> yeah, exactly. that on Friday. It was okay. a lovely so, You don't know lovely anything time. about yeah. it. Okay. We, you know, I was a little concerned and then they, you know, they announced that you have to be fully vaccinated to participate. Okay. Alleviated some of my concerns. And we got there yesterday. We weren't sure what to expect, how it was going to be. How can you physically distance in a marathon? It was so organized. They did it so well. So there were 800 pylons, 800. And there were different groups. You can only go up, you know, whatever time you're scheduled for. That's when you show up. And every person has to stand beside a pylon as you're waiting to, to leave or go to the start area. Uh, we're all masked there at the pylons but i mean you're you're a meter apart from everybody you're everybody stretching getting ready to go whatever not and you get moved in groups into the next area and there's always a pylon there and then as soon as it's time to go i mean you you have to stay where you are and then sure when you start running there you know different different speeds of different people some are walkers some are runners some are fast some are gunning it some are trying to prove something uh and hate those guys I know, I know, right? And then you're all spread out. So it was really well organized. They were so COVID friendly. Um, and I, I was impressed with how they handled it with so many people. There were thousands of people. Yeah, it's always it a huge event. Do you, it so felt you, you have to start with a mask, though. You, they say you got to start running with a mask. Yes. No, no, not running, not running. So when you're in the actual waiting area getting ready, you have to be wearing a mask. Yes. And then other than that, you can take it off. Okay. Interesting. And ju- just to be clear, you ran. On your own free will. There was no one chasing you, right? <laughs> I did. And it was fun. And I highly recommend it. What'd you get? So a medal? What do you get afterwards? You get a medal. You get bragging yeah. rights. My kids, I brought it home. They're like, is it real gold? And I was like, oh, yeah. Okay, <laughs> sure. So they all took turns wearing it. I'm envious because you know me. I can't run outside. I have a debilitating uh, set of injuries uh, that I'm not lazy. It's Well, it might be a bit of both. It's 60-40. But I have a debilitating set of injuries that uh, prevent me from running indoors. But well, last time I ran something, it was maybe five, six years ago in a 5K, and you can look up your time. Have you done that online? Have I you, have looked up my time, yes. And how did you fare compared to the rest I, of your hiking group? I oh well we're all at different levels. I think I was like uh, I was in the middle, but I mean I broke a record in terms of my my fastest ten k. Good, strong. Yeah, so I'm happy. Personal we, personal best. What, well are we, what, what are we talking? Forty two. Oh minutes? come on, you guys! 40, no, 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 no! I don't want to be judging this. I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't know if you can. Please Dave, don't. Dave's a, Dave knows. Dave is a hound. He's a news hound. We're going to have your time <laughs> yeah. and your finish by uh, in the next eight minutes. Just going to die with that. Give me a few seconds here <laughs> after my news. Really appreciate you listening to the Toronto Today podcast. We'll be back with a live show tomorrow between 5.30 and 9 a.m., including Dr. Monica Gandhi. Been looking forward. She makes her Canadian radio debut with this chat. That's a big deal. Uh, so we'll have her on the show, and you won't want to miss it, and it'll be right here in this space tomorrow. Thanks for listening and subscribing.